Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Powell placates the Fed chair set to address economic overheating fears. Crude considerations, OPEC members meet to, d- to discuss oil output and adverts allowed. Facebook refriends U.S. political ads. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us this Thursday as we march forth with another jam-packed show. And it's a very special day for me too because it's my mother's birthday. So happy birthday, mum. You are loved and adored and missed very much. Huge kiss to you. All right, let's move on. The U.S. majors are marching in place as it happens. Futures holding steady after that 2.7% sell-off in tech yesterday. Asia tech suffering too in the overnight session with majors there down some 2%, as you can see. Now, after Wednesday's slide, the Nasdaq here in the United States, less than three percentage points, in fact, from falling into a 10% correction territory. But I have to say, big pandemic winners like Tesla, Apple and Amazon are slightly higher, as you can see, pre-market after that 2% plus loss yesterday. So we shall see what happens in the session. The big fear remains, of course, that economic growth will be strong enough and inflation will be high enough to prompt the Federal Reserve to tighten policy or lift rates sooner than they've said that they will. To illustrate that point, U.S. yields spiked higher once again yesterday, but we are holding steady 1.48% on that 10-year bond today. Fed Chair Jay Powell speaks later Thursday, and there's clearly going to be a lot riding on his ability to calm investors. He's likely to stress that while it's recovering, the economy still needs help. That's also likely, too, that the bond market will continue to call his bluff. Tough for them to do that today, though, on the news that a further 745,000 Americans filed for first-time claims last week. Some 18 million Americans are still getting some sort of employment assistance. Let's get more on this in our drivers. We're joined by John Harwood. John, great to have you with us. There's no evidence of overheating an overheating economy and these jobless numbers once again in the past week, only evidence perhaps that longer support is going to be required. Well, and that's what uh, Jerome Powell's message so far has been very consistently. Um, We now have almost a full year, I think 50 weeks now, of jobless claims higher than the previous record before the pandemic. That shows you the continuing softness in the labor market. That fuels the argument that Joe Biden's making for his COVID relief package, $1.9 trillion, which the Senate's taking up today. Senate's likely to pass despite a lot of delaying tactics by Republicans on a party line vote, just as it passed on a party line vote uh, in the House. Now, there are some Democratic economists, as you know, Larry Summers, who have warned about the potential for overheating, the potential for uh, driving up inflation more than is uh, beneficial to the economy. Uh, Jerome Powell has not evinced that fear so far, but that's why everybody's going to be watching his speech today. I mean, it's a fine line to walk as well, because if he says, look, we're going to hang on in there, the economy needs support, the lowest waged workers in this country are still struggling and millions of people are still out of jobs, more than 10 million people since the pandemic began. The problem is, John, investors call his bluff and say we simply don't buy it. So in some way, he has to acknowledge the recovery that we are seeing while also saying we're recovering, but there's still work to be done. 
That's right, and also make the case for why even if inflation spikes above that 2% target that the Fed has set, that this is a transitory phenomenon. That's what Jay Powell has said so far. Uh, yes, uh, it could be that we see inflation uh, rise uh, above uh, the benchmark that we've set. Uh, but if so, that's likely to be a short-term phenomenon. We still have long-term softness within the economy. Uh, he's made that case consistently. Does he make it again today? Yes, there are still alarm bells going off in the U.S. economy. And behind you, John, well handled. I believe they've stopped now. So thank you so much for that, John Howard. Great to be with you. All right. As we speak, the major oil producers OPEC Plus meeting to review record supply cuts put in place during the pandemic. Recovering demand has pushed oil prices back to pre-pandemic levels, leading some to call for a reversal of the cuts. John Defterius joins me now talking of tough decisions and uh, tough maneuverings going on. John, you are the man in the know as far as OPEC and OPEC Plus is concerned. What are you hearing about the discussions in this meeting? Well, it's hard to hear anything, uh, Julia. This is like a poker game because the ministers are keeping the cards very close to their vest this time around. Usually you get uh, conversations ahead of time with a, a lot of guidance. That's not the case right now. And we saw a wide variance of predictions. Three days ago, I saw this, we'll add 1.5 million barrels a day. This was uh, bank reports coming out of Wall Street. I thought, that's very high. And the latest indication is perhaps adding a half a million barrels a day overall. That's coming from the Russia's uh, deputy uh, minister of energy at the same time. So let's get everybody up to date. What are we talking about? What's this poker table have on the table? Uh, 7 million barrels a day collectively by the OPEC plus 23. And then Saudi Arabia kind of doubled down and added another million barrels a day off the market, uh, announced it in January and in place February and March. Now, it's very important that those two see eye to eye. Uh, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister, Alexander Novak, and the Minister of Energy, Abdulaziz bin Salman. Because if you look back over the last year, when they didn't see eye to eye, we were at $51 a barrel when it was at the OPEC meeting in March of 2020, and we collapsed to 19 because they had a price war. Saudi Arabia was saying the pandemic was going to be awful. Nobody really believed in the data that they were showing. They turned out to be correct, and then they started cutting in May. And then when they announced this additional cut in January, look at the end of that chart, Julia, we added $18 from the end of January through the first week of March because the vaccines are rolling out and this additional oil is off the market right now. And in the first five minutes of the meeting, which started about 30 minutes ago, the Saudi minister made it very clear what he's thinking. At this stage, he says, let's be cautious and vigilant. If we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. It may be a freight train coming in our direction if the recovery is not for real. So they have to kind of find this Goldilocks scenario, not too hot on prices, not too cold, uh, keep the market supplied. Uh, but don't start adding oil too early is the message from the Saudis. It's what makes this market so fascinating. Not only the economics for the individual nations involved, the horseplay behind the scenes, the, the trading that investors look at in terms of what's right for all prices, prices and all the players involved here, not to mention the economic growth outlook, John. But it's the geopolitics that is also fascinating in this meeting, particularly in light of what we've seen between the United States and Saudi Arabia coming into this meeting. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head here. Let's start with the economic pressures, though, uh, Julia, because the import fees for some of the developing countries are, are severe. And I'm just going to lay out one example, and that's India. Uh, the Minister of Petroleum, who I know well, uh, Minister Pradhan, told Sarah Week uh, in the last 12 hours, he said, look, you know, uh, OPEC 
plus promised price stability and supplies. This is not normal supplies when you're taking 8 million barrels a day off the market. They need a break. This is too high for them. And they're the number three importer in the world, big client of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Russia. So he does have a voice. And you talked about the geopolitics. There's a reset underway by Joe Biden with Saudi Arabia. So they're very cognizant. They want to be the good global citizen and always be that swing producer that stabilizes the market. Well, that's this window of time, Julia, uh, because if you get to 80 to $85 a barrel, like some of those on Wall Street are suggesting right now, it could stive off the recovery in the second half of 2021. And Saudi doesn't want everybody pointing the finger and say, well, you did that, right? So, and they also remember 2008 when prices spiraled up to $140 a barrel, they collapsed to 30 because it killed off demand. So it is that Goldilocks scenario. Can we find the middle ground here Maybe add up to a million barrels back onto the market. No more than that, though. I'd be surprised if it was. A delicate balancing act. John, great to have you with us. Thank you. John Defterius there. All right, on to Hong Kong, where a court has ruled that 32 pro-democracy leaders, including Joshua Wong, will remain in jail until their next hearing in May. They were all arrested under China's national security law. Will Ripley is live in Hong Kong for us, Will. And we've seen sporadic protests throughout the week as we awaited this outcome. Just give us all the details and the reaction there. I was at the courthouse earlier this week. Yes, the crowd was larger than what we were used to seeing in COVID times, but still much smaller than the protests in the summer of 2019 and much uh, certainly much smaller than the scores of voters who turned out to vote for these pro-democracy candidates in local elections, winning overwhelmingly in local elections. And then when they tried to stand in this primary, which was delayed because of the pandemic, uh, they were disqualified. And now they're being accused of violating the national security law. So in other words, all the people who were running for office are now charged. And you mentioned 32 of them are going to have to stay behind bars to give prosecutors time to go through their phones and their financial records until the end of May, almost three months. Normally, the way it works with the judiciary here in Hong Kong, you have to prove to the judge why you don't need bail. But it works differently with the national security law. With the national security law, they kind of take it as a, as a given that you're going to put someone in custody unless they go through all these different things and agree to all these things uh, in order to get bail. That's why out of the 47 charged, just you know, 15 have, were granted bail and already prosecutors have immediately appealed that. So the 15 people who are hopefully going to get bail, they have another you know, court case on Saturday that they have to go to. Um, there's also something happening in Beijing. Uh, we're on the eve of the National People's Congress, and there have been a lot of reports that one of the things on their agenda is to improve, from the Beijing perspective, the Hong Kong election system. There have been reports that Beijing is going to only allow patriots to run for office. So in the past, where you had kind of a spirited back and forth, even though the government was already kind of stacked in Beijing's favor with the number of seats allocated to pro-Beijing parties, now you have a situation where there may not be anybody in the government here in Hong Kong actually representing the pro-democracy viewpoint. In fact, all those people could be in jail. We wait and see what happens later on and this weekend and beyond. Will Ripley, thank you for that update there. All right, breaking news coming into CNN. A 6.9 magnitude earthquake has hit near New Zealand's North Island, just over 200 kilometers east of Gisborne. According to the United States Geological Survey, a tsunami threat has been issued by the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. No reports of injuries or damage as yet, but we will bring you more on this the moment we get it. 
All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Britain's Prince Philip is resting after undergoing a medical procedure for a heart condition on Wednesday. That's according to Buckingham Palace. The palace says the 99-year-old Duke of Edinburgh will remain in hospital for a number of days. And that's not the only royal news this morning. Max Foster joins us now. Max, but arguably the most important. What more do we know about Prince Philip's health? Well, only that he's had this uh, procedure. Is it an operation? We don't really know. Uh, We know that a few years ago he had a stent fitted, so maybe they were looking at that. Um, But he has had this treatment in this specialist hospital, and he needs more treatment as well over the coming days. So it's a watch, really. The palace aren't giving a running commentary, so we tend to find out about these things after the event. But he is recovering. He has responded well to that treatment so far. So that's good news so far, at least, Julia. And we keep our fingers crossed for his ongoing recovery here, Max. But I did make the point that it's not the only news. What we've also heard in the last 24 hours is that Buckingham Palace is investigating claims of bullying of staff against the Duchess of Sussex, of course, Meghan. Not to be outdone, we've had the ongoing teasers for Oprah Winfrey's interview with both Harry and Meghan. And we got another teaser last night and claims of bullying by the royal family in the other direction. Just let me play this for our viewers. How do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? I don't know how they could expect that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes with risk of losing things, I mean, I've, there's a lot that's been lost already. Max, what a mess. A mess in terms of timing, quite frankly, with what's going on with Prince Philip, but just a mess in general, a soap opera, a royal soap opera. Yeah, but some serious allegations behind it. I mean, what Meghan is saying here is that the palace uh, was working against her, but actually Oprah uh, puts palace in the question and Meghan responds with the term the firm, which is actually a reference to the royal family. She's suggesting they were working against her. We need to find the full context here because it's a two-hour interview. But what I think she's suggesting, if I go on what she's been talking about in the past, is that you know the tabloid media was attacking her, they were lying about her, Uh, But the palace then didn't step in and defend her against a lot of those lies. And this goes back to their no-comment policy, which Meghan has had a problem with throughout. Uh, They don't comment on speculative stories. That's a protocol that set in over decades. They would argue that that is because they can't respond to everything. Otherwise, they would be responding to everything non-stop all the time. There's so much coverage of the family. But she, um, I think that that's what she's suggesting. But she's taking it up a level here referencing it to the family, uh, but also suggesting that they are working against her. So it is incendiary. And then, you know, obviously this was recorded a couple of weeks ago, but it was released in relation to these bullying allegations that were in the Times, uh, suggestions from unnamed sources in the Times uh, that she forced out uh, two personal assistants and undermined the confidence of a third member of staff. Uh, That's now being uh, um, investigated uh, by the Human Resources Department at Buckingham Palace because the allegation is that they didn't follow up on this at the time. So um, it is getting very messy, and I think we can certainly confirm it is now a rift, and it's broken out as well into the public. 
Yeah, I called it a teaser sock, didn't I, earlier? And um, obviously that interview going to air this weekend and we will get the context that you talked about. Max, great to have you with us. Thank you. Max Foster, thanks for that report. All right, the UN Human Rights Chief says the police and military in Myanmar have killed at least 54 people since the coup on February 1st. She's calling on security forces to halt their crackdown on peaceful protesters and immediately release hundreds of people who've been arbitrarily detained. European Union regulators have begun reviewing Russia's coronavirus vaccine. They say they're studying data to see if the benefits of Sputnik V outweigh the risks. Russia says it could provide the EU with enough vaccines to inoculate 50 million people with distribution starting in June. All right, still to come on First Move. Speaking of vaccines, vaccine fraud with legitimate doses in short supply. Swindlers are scamming keen buyers with non-existent vaccine offers worth billions of dollars. We've got the details and the even bigger business of buy now, pay later. How Sweden's shopping app Klarna netted a $31 billion valuation. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we continue to monitor the trouble in Techland. Nasdaq futures under pressure once again after yesterday's fall. The tech tizzy taking a bite out of the most closely watched growth exchange traded fund or ETF, ARK Innovation. It's run by star fund manager Kathy Wood, who's been on the show a number of times. The fund, which holds large positions in things like Tesla, Roku and Square, has fallen into a 20 percent bear market. For context, you can see on the chart there, it's still up 130 percent over the past year. All right, a major new warning now about COVID vaccine scams across Europe. The European Anti-Fraud Office, also known as OLAF, saying scammers have offered governments around 1 billion non-existent vaccine doses worth more than $16 billion. Joining us now is Vili Italia. He's Director General of the European Anti-Fraud Office. So fantastic to have you on the show. I believe you were only a week or so into this investigation and you were so alarmed by what you saw, you decided to go public. These numbers are huge. Just talk about your decision to announce what you were already seeing. Yeah, you are right. We normally don't go to public in uh, our uh, investigations, but uh, this is really exceptional uh, situation and we we have seen, unfortunately, the growing numbers of the scams and uh, fake offers uh, related to vaccines. And uh, uh, yes. No, please carry on. Yeah, we, we get this information from uh, national uh, governmental sources. Uh, these uh, fraudulent uh, people go and offer these uh, false fake uh, vaccines to, to governments. And everyone knows the pressure. Uh, to get the vaccines. So it was important to inform the governments uh, don't go there in this direction. So just because you've sent us some charts just to give us a sense of how these approaches are being made. And to your point, you're saying they're going direct to, to European governments. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes it's an email. Sometimes they go to national authorities. Sometimes they go to regional authorities. I mean, who is doing this and how professional is it, whether it's an email or a phone call? Is it tough for those that are receiving these to 
recognize and identify a scam? Yeah, it's quite difficult and uh, they mainly uh, send emails, but they are letters, they are phone calls too, but uh, mainly emails and mainly for the uh, governmental level, but also uh, local level too. Uh, but they are normally in these offers, uh, we, we find uh, 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 long uh, chain of companies. And the main company, the operational company, is normally in third country. So it's uh, more difficult to, to identify and uh, investigate. So we're thinking that it's coming from sources outside of the EU. Have you managed to do any due diligence and identify precisely where they're coming from? Yeah, that's the work what we do with the uh, national authorities. And uh, we have uh, recognized and identified some persons. And uh, what we have found out is uh, also that it's uh, uh, criminal gangs quite often behind these offers. Do you think the situation has been made worse by the lack of vaccine availability in Europe? We've all seen the news headlines with countries worried, the fights between big pharmaceuticals and nation states in Europe saying we thought we were going to get vaccines sooner. We thought we were going to have more. Individuals in these citizens in these nations are very sensitive to it. That's also a green flag to scammers out there to say, look, we can try it on with these governments because we know they're fearful and, and they, they are desperate for vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, important that uh, uh, when we have so huge pressure, uh, also political pressure, everyone wants to have the vaccine. Mm. Uh, these uh, fraudulent people, they are always very creative and uh, they are always there where the money uh, flows. Has anyone fallen for a scam or they literally just flag it to you immediately and say, look, we need to investigate it? What action are you taking currently? Again, it's early days. We appreciate that. Yeah, uh, that's uh, what we give is uh, advice for the national authorities and we help them to identify these uh, fraud attempts. And uh, this is uh, really preventive work from our side. And so far we have been lucky and as, uh, as uh, we know, none of these governments has taken uh, uh, these offers. You know, my, my biggest fear here is that we have people who are already nervous about taking vaccines, anti-vaxxers. It's certainly prevalent in the United States, but it's all around the world, too. And if this in some way undermines the trust of ordinary people to be willing to go and get a vaccine because they're afraid about the source, that's another critical element here and, and something that we have to be very careful about, surely. Yeah, I think that's uh, the main issue here and that's mm. the main reason we, we came out with, with this information. Uh, luckily, we have uh, succeeded. The scams has not been successful. So the, uh, it's not only the financial consequences which can happen. I think the main issue here is the trust. Now, when we have uh, succeeded, then uh, uh, the people and citizens can trust when they take the vaccine. It's a real vaccine. Yeah, and actually, just in terms of the numbers that you were seeing and the ramp up in 
who was asking and the rate upon which they were asking and the amount of money that they were asking, it's been ramping up since really the third week of February. Have you seen any shift in the last two weeks or so? Has it come down at all? Just because you've gone out there and said, look, guys, we know you're doing this. We're, we're on to you. Yeah, first, the numbers go really high up uh, uh, in, in two weeks' time. But now when we we have revealed this and uh, come to the public, uh, we have seen in the uh, last two, three days, uh, they are coming down. Ah. So I I think it's uh, it's luckily it's uh, working. And that's why we're talking but, about it. Sir, great to have you on, sending a stern message to those out there that are un- trying to undermine trust. We're on to you. The Director General of the European Anti-Fraud Office, sir, thank you for your update there. All right, the market opens next. We're back up to this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. And as expected, we are seeing more pressure on tech down some three-tenths of 1% there. The Nasdaq falling to two-month lows in Wednesday's session, where the Wall Street majors end today, is, of course, TBD, the price action in tech. And bonds going to continue to be the focus. And Fed Chair Jay Powell's discourse on the economy all up for debate for investors today. T also stands for trade and a big win for Britain. The US today suspending steep 25% tariffs on a wide range of UK goods for four months so the two sides can come to an agreement on government subsidies for jet makers, Airbus and Boeing. This means Americans will not see big price hikes for UK imports like single malt scotch, cashmere and clotted cream. Phew! The UK suspended tariffs on US goods last month. All right, breaking news now coming into us at CNN and an update. A 6.9 magnitude earthquake is hit near New Zealand's North Island, just over 200 kilometers east of Gisborne, according to the United States Geological Survey. A tsunami threat has been issued by the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. And as I mentioned earlier, no reports of injuries or damage as yet. We will bring you more as we get it in terms of updates. But for now, let's bring in CNN meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, clearly the tsunami warning, the big concern here. What more can you tell us? Julie, we we know that a tsunami was generated because we know it has already hit East Cape, New Zealand, at about 0.3 meters so about one foot in height. But they're actually, the, the tsunami advisory is saying this could be 0.3 meters all the way to one meter. So it was a 6.9. Now earlier, if you were watching or even listening or seeing it on maybe on your phone, it was a 7.3. And that happens a lot where they have to see what it truly is and it takes a few minutes to get all of the information put into the computer. So we do know that a tsunami was generated. This is not a widespread Pacific-wide tsunami. This is a localized tsunami thinking somewhere between around the epicenter, likely at 300 kilometers or less. And after that, the waves will have dissipated. Now, the first wave is not always the biggest wave. And if you're along this coast, you need to be moving away from land. And they're saying, walk, run, or ride a bike. Do not get into a car and make a congestion. Now, a one meter wave isn't going to go very far inland. But if you're on the shore, you certainly need to get away. Julia. Chad, fantastic to have you with us. Great context and great advice there. Thank you. And we'll, we will update you throughout the show and all day here on CNN as we get it. Stay with us. We're back after this.
Welcome back to the show. By now, Paylater's shopping app Plana has just completed a fresh funding round, which tripled its valuation to an estimated $31 billion. That makes it more valuable than Germany's biggest lender, Deutsche Bank, and comparable with giant European banks like Barclays and Credit Suisse. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it also makes it Europe's most valuable startup. Joining us now, Sebastian Simakowski. He's the CEO of Klarna. Sebastian, congratulations. I think this redefines the term challenger bank, quite frankly. How does it feel to be the second largest fintech in the world? It's kind of unreal when you say it like that, to be entirely fair. But, um, no, I mean, I, I, must, I must hope that it's some kind of... Um, some kind of, uh, you know, result of, of, uh, of people believing in our ambition and what we're trying to accomplish here. So, so I hope that's the, way, that's the way to see it. Just explain that and the ambition, actually, because you have the buy now, pay later options and you're growing at a rapid rate, including here in the United States, where I believe you now have around 50 million customers. But you're also pushing into retail banking at home and in Germany as well. So in terms of vision, you have a lot going on and you're expanding really fast. Where are you headed Sure. I think that like, I mean, when we started a company, you know, we, I was like 23 years old back then. And so, you know, I, at least I don't know about you, but I, I know I hadn't figured out the world back then. And so, so really starting Klana for us. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, but, but, but I know at least that like, so, so, you know, for us starting company wasn't, we were just trying to go off the beaten path. All our friends wanted to work at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and we wanted to do something different. You know, back then, nobody wanted to start a company. It was like 7% of students in, in Stockholm. Now it's 70, right? Um, so we saw this opportunity to kind of provide a, a better digital service, a better payment service online. But I think as we as we grow now, you know, 16 years have passed. We realized that, you know, if we really want to change this retail banking industry, just digitalizing it is not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. There, this is unfortunately an industry that you know has suffered from not being customer friendly, from a lot of like opaque terms. I mean, we read it in the press all the day, whether it's pension funds or IPOs or whether it's retail products for consumers, where you know people get. Uh, hooked on some kind of product and then they're pushed into 29% interest revolving uh, type of credit loans. It, it, it's just not a great industry. So we've come to a point where we said, look, it's not going to be all, only about digitalization. It's going to be about trying to fundamentally change how these businesses work and how the business model works. And and the key there is the buy now, pay later, because differently from your credit card, that basically you know gives you 30 days interest-free credit and a lot of loyalty points. And none of us are asking ourselves, like, who's paying for that? Unfortunately, there's a subset of customers, usually low income, that are revolving at 29% interest. And that money is then transferred to people with more money, which is just not a great model. And younger consumers, millennials, are really seeing that. Buy Now, Pay Later offers everyone four interest-free installments, no interest, uh, no fees for the consumer. And the merchant is paying it for the, because they're being rewarded by consumers with higher spend. So it's a better model that we think has the future for it. You know, people using more debit than credit, using debit cards to a higher degree, which is already happening, and then occasionally using uh, things like this. And so I we guess, think this really has the potential to, to transform the industry, which is I super exciting. The pushback, though, for those that would, would look at this and say, hang on a second, but it's the same thing. You could still have people that try and do this and they're never going to make the four installments. They maybe make a couple of them and then they can't afford them either. And actually, you're encouraging people who don't have money to spend in the same way that a credit card is. Why is this different, Sebastian? Because I do think this cuts to the core of of what you're saying here beyond everything else about digitization, which I agree with you, by the way. Explain that. Well, I think first and foremost, it's different because the business model isn't built on, you know, the better off customer getting it for free because the worse off customers are, are paying high interest rates. So it's it's equal, equal for everyone. Everyone gets the four interest free 
uh, installments, and it's the merchant who negotiates the rate with Klarna uh, and pays for that. So that's one improvement, right? The second improvement to your point is about how careful are you on the underwriting perspective. And I, I sincerely believe that, you know, a credit card starts with you applying for it and then getting a limit of, let's say, you know, $1,000 or $2,000. And and then there's no stop to that, right? What, the way a buy now, pay later service like Klarna works is that we give somebody $100 to spend, and then we give them $200. And if they showcase that they can and manage this credit in a responsible way, then we improve, we increase that credit line. So it, those are fundamentally different. Now, if you are entirely against credit as a concept, well, you know, I'm not going to win the argument. I do believe credit has a role to play in society. I do think it contributes to society. Um, but I think there's a better way and there's an opportunity to provide lower cost credit uh, that is more affordable to consumers. And, and, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and you prove what you're capable of as you go along, rather than, being, to your point, being given a massive, great limit and um, getting into trouble instantly. Um, so right. I, I brought up the idea of profitability, because you're still loss-making, but you're in expansion phase, with my team earlier, and they told me it's boomer mentality, and I've been accused of that, actually, in the past, or complimented with it. You know, I know you're sort of talking about an IPO, perhaps this year, maybe next year, but also in the process of raising money. Is the conversation about timing profitability, when will you be profitable, even being had at this stage, Sebastian? And can you give us any clarity on it? Does it matter for you at this moment? <laughs> no, I do think it matters. And as I said, you know, again, when we were 23 and started a company, actually, you know, those were before, at least for us, there wasn't the concept of like, we could just run a company unprofitable for multiple years. So Klarna actually became, you know, we raised our first fundraise was $60,000. We spent half of it before we became profitable. And so we've been profitable for the first 15 years. The business model works. It is profitable. What's happened in the last one or two years is we came to a conclusion that, you know, we, we looked at the industry and we said, you know what, the Tesla moment that happened to the car industry is about to happen in the banking industry. This is going to be the time when that massive shift is coming. And for, if I want to maximize our shareholders' uh, returns, that now's the time to invest. Now's the opportunity to go and transform this industry. And so as a consequence, we, we started, you know, massively increase our investments. And that has then res resulted in a more negative, in a loss making from that perspective. But the underlying business model is profitable today. And so so uh, that's just a question of our ambition. We just see that, you know, this is a trillion dollar industry, this retail banking, and, and, and it's really been protected by regulatory, it's been protected by scale, it's been protected by um, all these uh, barriers of entry. And, um, and now we want to go and, uh, and try to make some change here. So you're the Tesla of finance. Well, I, I, you said it. I, <laughs> but I, <laughs> you I inferred hope, it. I, I, I think, <laughs> but I think... I think um, I may have led you there, but I think that, like um, I, I think there is a I think there is an opportunity to, to to play a similar role. Yes, I do believe, and and I hope it you know I hope it's going to be more companies than Klarna, obviously, who can who can do that because it is a it is an industry that needs that is ripe for that for that change, right? It's not an industry that has kept customers at best interest at heart, and and in and it has have actually fairly um, not great functioning competition. Sebastian, it's been amazing to chat to you. I'm getting told off now because I meant to ask about some very pointed comments you asked. You mentioned about Bitcoin in a different interview. So you're going to have to promise to come back on soon and talk to me about that because I, I think your perspective here is very yeah. interesting too. But we don't have time, so you have to come back soon. Sebastian, great to have I you will, on. This is your Klarna, you've promised now. Thank you. <laughs> All right, next up on First Move on another level, an electric flying taxi startup wants to take flight in just three years. Details on the other side of this break. Don't move a muscle.
Welcome back to First Move. Plans for flying cars and taxis make regular appearances on First Move. But what do United Airlines know that we don't? Because they've just ordered 200 electric flying taxis in a billion-dollar partnership. The company making them, Archer, says they will shuttle passengers from Manhattan to JFK Airport in seven minutes, all for the cost of an Uber X. And all we have to show you are some futuristic stills. Brett Adcock is co-founder and co-CEO of Archer. Brett, you have had a monster month raising money, the deal with United. Does the thing in the image that we can see behind you actually fly? Hi, Julia. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe I could take a step back and talk about a little bit of a, <laughs> you a may. picture and where we're at. Um, so, so here at Archer, we're building electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft uh, used for urban air mobility. Um, so over the last 20 years, there's been an incredible step change as uh, electric power systems have gotten better. Uh, you've seen, uh, you know, we've seen electrification now on the ground and that's now moving to the air. Uh, when building an electric aircraft, there are three uh, big benefits here that are enabling us to build what we think is a next generation mobility business. Uh, one is like lower cost uh, to operate. Uh, two is higher safety. Uh, and three is lower noise. And uh, obviously we're doing all this with zero emissions. Uh, this will give way to a new industry called urban air mobility that will help move passenger and goods uh, in and around city and beyond. And uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're really thankful to be partnered with United Airlines this quarter. Uh, they bought a billion dollars of aircraft and uh, we'll be start taking deliveries on those in three years. Uh, the aircraft behind me is, uh, is going through final assembly in our lab uh, right now. And um, we will be flying the aircraft this year. Um, and it's our full scale uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft called Maker. Wow, you are going to have an incredible three years. That's all I can say. One of the other things, and it goes to the point of manufacture, and I think you've mentioned it with, with safety and with efficiency, you're actually going to manufacture your own batteries for this too. Talk me through that decision, because arguably you could buy those in and save yourself some effort over the next three years. Yeah, I mean, the, the batteries are really uh, one of the key enabling technologies for us over the next several years. Um, they're really important for a few reasons. Um, one is uh, we need to have a certain level of performance of the aircraft, certain power requirements in both uh, takeoff and landing and also for emergency reserves. And also we have to adhere to really strict safety standards from the FAA as we certify the aircraft and bring it into production. And that has pushed us to basically uh, vertically integrating uh, almost all the battery technologies here. Uh, we think we do it uh, you know, best in class and uh, we have a lot of intellectual property that we've developed over the several, last several years. Um, and it's a, you know, a key IP area for us uh, in, in development and manufacturing area over the next several years. Yeah. And where are you with the regulators? Because you raise a great point there. Yeah. So we are, we've chose to certify here in the United States, uh, governed federally in the airspace is the FAA. Um, so we're currently in process with the FAA of certifying our electric vehicle uh, so we can enter operations in 2024. Uh, we currently have around 50 people at the FAA working on our project every day. Uh, we feel really great about our progress that phase so far, and um, you know we're uh, you know we're ultimately uh, uh, working with FAA in tandem to make sure we certify our aircraft to the safest levels of uh, commercial aviation performance, um, which will be important here as we roll out our operations. Uh, you know, first here here in the U.S. and globally. And just explain who's going to be in there. Is the pilot going to be in there, and then how many passengers can you take? Sure, we are, we're certifying a piloted four-passenger aircraft. Um, you know, the pilot in here is really important um, as we get going, I think for a few reasons, but um, 
you know, we, we, are, we are going to enter operations in 2024 and be using existing infrastructure on the ground, like helipads, airports, retrofitted parking garages. And, uh, and then we will be using uh, traditional air traffic control, uh, piloted air traffic control. And so uh, I, you think about this as we, we have urban air mobility today. It's just helicopters. They take people around in a lot of cities in the U.S. today. Helicopters are just too, they're just too expensive. Uh, they're not very safe and they're very noisy. Um, so a lot of cities in the U.S. have even banned helicopters and the use of them for passengers. Uh, here it's completely different for electric aircrafts. They're uh, really affordable to operate as you move to electric powertrain. Uh, you have like a lot, lot fewer maintenance, no fuel. Uh, they're low noise, like our aircraft is uh, inaudible over flight as we're flying that 2,000 feet above ground level. And uh, we're certifying the aircraft as standards uh, that you've seen in commercial airliners today, which is one of the safest forms of transportation we take. And I'm really going to be able to do this for less than half the cost of getting a helicopter between Manhattan and JFK at this moment, because to your point, you, you believe this could disrupt uh, ride sharing. I mean, way more than half the cost. Uh, a traditional helicopter day is very expensive. Um, we think the operating cost of these aircraft entering service will be an order of magnitude or one-tenth the cost of operating a helicopter. I mean, when, when you move to electric, you have this incredible step change where you remove 70 or 80% of the parts. We have no critical components on the aircraft, which means we have no single point of failure, if, uh, in which helicopters have hundreds of. Mm. Uh, we have far fewer maintenance because of all that and we have no fuel. So um, we will operate the aircrafts uh, at level scene and maybe like, like ride sharing on the ground today. And then over time, we'll push prices down to the cost of car ownership uh, with aero ride sharing and, um, and the ability to manufacture at scale. So um, so yeah, the, the goal here is to build an affordable service for the masses to get around. And you know, we have a lot of folks stuck on the ground in traffic, driving 30 minutes, an hour, hour and a half to places. And uh, we wanna send that right into the air where we can travel at 150 miles an hour point to point. And as you mentioned in the opener, you know, JFK to Manhattan. We can do that in 10 minutes. Uh, we can do 40 trips a day per aircraft. And, uh, you know, we're really excited about entering a lot of the bigger cities here in the U.S. in the next three years. Yeah, I should point out, I mentioned, I was talking about sort of ride-sharing helicopters as opposed to uh, ordinary ones. But, wow, Brett, if I can do JFK to Manhattan in, uh, in 10 minutes, sign me up. You just have to get the thing flying, please. So you've got um, a busy few years coming up. Brett Adcock, great to have you with us. Keep in touch, please. Co-founder and co-CEO of Archer. Great to have you with us. All right. On the day, threats of new violence in Washington echo around social media. Facebook is lifting its ban on U.S. political advertising. Google actually did the same thing last week with some caveats. Both companies are trying to balance free speech against public safety. Brian Stelter joins us now. Brian, great to have you on the show. There's a whole lot of things we can throw at this. The timing of the decision with what's going on in D.C. today, quite frankly. But the right. fact that Democratic strategists are like, hang on a second, you're penalizing us, you're confusing us with your decisions. And actually, if you just controlled content better, we wouldn't need to do this. Yeah, in the ad world, there's a lot of confusion about Facebook's moves. The ban last fall, the resumption of ads now, not just political ads, but social issue ads as well. So when they banned all these politicians like President Trump last November, uh, last October, that also impacted a lot of uh, advocacy groups that run ads on Facebook, trying to get people to sign up for campaigns, donate money, etc. So this was something that was sweeping and happened very suddenly and caused a lot of chaos. Now Facebook is turning the option back on. Politicians can start to 
run ads again starting today. But the company does say we're going to look at how these ads work to see what other further changes may be merited. That raises the question of what's going to happen during the midterm election cycle in the United States and what's going to happen during races in other countries. How is Facebook going to handle political advertising? I think it's very strange, Julia, that Facebook decided to do this today. Uh, they could have done it yesterday. They could have done it Friday. Everybody in the country knows that March 4th, unfortunately, has been circled on the calendar by these lunatic conspiracy theorists who claim that somehow President Trump could be reinstalled and President Biden booted out of the White House. This ludicrous theory has caused such security concerns in D.C. So Facebook, to do this today of all days, you know, you can imagine the ridiculous conspiracy theories that would come out of Facebook taking action on political ads on today of all days. It just shows that Facebook seems tone deaf sometimes to this misinformation war world. Or a cynic might say it just ensured we all talked about it, Brian, but then I'm the least cynical person I know. <laughs> I sure hope that's not true. I do think <laughs> it's Facebook, not true. <laughs> Facebook, you know, it's oftentimes oh. they can't get out of their own way, right? And, and, and it feels like one of those examples. But in this case, as you said, they are following Google. They are, you know, Google did start to put political ads back online uh, recently. Facebook now doing the same. And a lot of ad strategists are going to be thrilled about this. You know, so many campaigns, so many wars are waged on Facebook these days. So it is a big deal for the political world. Yeah, and to be clear, Google are doing it, but they've changed the policy that they won't target based on browsing history, so yeah. less able to target people. And that's a critical difference, I think, for data privacy too. But, Brian, we're out of time. We will reconvene, my friend. Brian Thanks. Stelter, thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll be back tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.